Thank you. Thank you. The president will dismiss the PSEO students if he remembers. And if he does not, he will get some help from all these people around, and you'll wave at me and say something like, don't forget what you're supposed to do. And uh, we do welcome those who are here for a visit day. PSEO, raise your hand so I can see where you are. I think you're usually over here. <clears throat> Very good. Post-secondary education option. It's a great um, program. And uh, we hope you have a great day here at North Central. Well, this has been a busy week uh, for me. Uh, Monday went off to a funeral in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. So did Doug Graham. I actually left Sunday night and drove to Fargo so I wouldn't have to do what Doug did the next day. And that is get up at 3.30 in the morning and drive to Bismarck participate in a funeral and drive back that night. So um, we all, the Purple Heart Award uh, commemoration for Doug's uh, <clears throat> hard work on Monday, mine not quite so hard, but uh, superintendent and father of one of our faculty members and mother of one of our faculty members, Joanne Kirsten, uh, Marcus and Elva May Baki, passed away 48 hours apart and a double funeral on Monday, so we went to that. And then this week, uh, the district, Minnesota district, has been meeting for the School of Ministry and credentialing of uh, candidates for various levels of ministry, Christian ministry, certificate of ministry, and the license and ordination. And I've participated in this for many, many years, being a member of the Presbytery. Came away so proud of the North Central University students. And to sit in the um, presbytery room after the interviews and to hear these pastors and leaders of our district talk about the quality of the students. And I just sat there and beamed and I uh, was so proud of you. So really, to those students, uh, thanks for just being such uh, great, wonderful people moving now from the educational piece into the uh, next step of your life in ministry. Very, very proud of you. And so I was doing that Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And just like today, these videos, this, this is just tremendous to see that our students moving on now to Cairo and around the world. So I commend you and appreciate it and am so heartened by those things. We've been dealing with the subject of revival. By way of introduction, revival is a period of time when people get a broke feeler fixed. That is uh, not the most theological definition of revival you've ever heard, but it may be one of the more helpful definitions. We as human beings are created in the image of God and created for intimate fellowship and relationship with God. And uh, relationships are multifaceted. Uh, they involve your emotional life, your intellectual life. Uh, just think of a human relationship and all that goes into it. Our relationship with God is deeply personal. It is very intimate. It has to do with the, the deepest elements of our human makeup, all that makes us human. The greatest problems that human beings face, the sin problem. Sin makes a separation between human beings and their creator. And the issue of holiness 
and obedience and the power of the kingdom. It is such a multifaceted relationship. And um, sin does separate people from God. So the first problem that has to be resolved is a sin problem through forgiveness of sin. You can be forgiven, though, and not be perfect. Do any of you know that? Are there anyone here this morning who is forgiven? How many of you are forgiven? Right, you're forgiven. How many of you are perfect? Only me and you. So you can see the um, the uh, difficulty of perfection is a great deal more than the salvation issue. So we are born again, saved, and forgiven so that we can become like God in actuality. That's the holiness piece. And then there is the outreach piece, that we are participants with God in redeeming his creation. And so that really uh, deals with what I've uh, put together in three phases of this reviving process, whether it's individual or corporate. And that is... First of all, we reach up, that is, cleanse me, Lord. That's the cleaning part, the forgiving part, the holiness part. Secondly, fill me, receive, respond. And I'll be dealing with that one this morning. And then the reach out piece. And uh, the reach up, uh, receive, respond, and reach out framework is is a good framework to help us remember all that is going on when we say uh, revival. Revival is a period of time, I said, when people get a broke feeler fixed. That's an interesting way to characterize it. The presence of God is experienced in many ways. The reality of God is experienced in many ways. It is experienced in all of the ways that we are human, and we can just quickly identify four. It's experienced intellectually or knowledge. That is learning about God, knowing God, learning about his characteristics, the ways of God, how God does things. The Bible is the roadmap that leads us into an understanding. That's an intellectual thing. That's a knowledge piece. That's knowing about God. There's also a volitional piece, your will. That has to do with not just knowing, but obeying, submitting, coming under the authority of the kingdom of God. And our relationship with God includes the volitional piece. If all you do is know and never obey, you're not going to amount to much in terms of measuring up to the image of God. There has to be the volitional piece as well. We are people. We are not souls in a body. We are people, and having a body, being body, our physical dimension, is part of our person as well. Sometimes we get this one mixed up. When we say that we're a soul in a body, listen, Our personhood includes the reality of our physical body. It's not just a tent that a person inhabits. It's a part of your person. And so the body is very, very important. It's important in terms of holiness, and that is what you do with your body, how you use your body. Is it an instrument of holiness? Is it an an instrument of sin? Is it an instrument of wickedness? And so the body... Glorify God in our body, the Bible says, that uh, God's presence is within our body. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But then also in worship. Worship is very physical. And when you read the uh, descriptions of worship, 
It's very physical. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph and rejoice and dance before the Lord. Very, very physical. And so you need to get your body lined up with the power of God's presence. Then another component is your emotional life. Emotions, love and hate and depression and exhilaration and, you know, all of those things. That's very, very important. Now, different groups and different church groups tend to emphasize, there's a tendency to emphasize one or two and ignore the others. And often denominations are really built around an emphasis on one, and um, we could even characterize that. The intellectual piece that's theology, that's uh, education, and uh, the Presbyterians and the Catholics, boy, they have a pretty good lock on that education piece for the Presbyterians. <clears throat> the will piece, that would be the, some of those holiness people. Now, in, in its worst case, uh, the will is just a stubborn, unbending, you know, permanent pucker Christianity, you know, just, but these are, these are tough people. So the holiness people, maybe some of the Nazarenes get a lock down on the, the volitional piece. Physical piece, well, that's where the Pentecostals kind of enter in because we're the ones who run, jump, shout, and lift our hands and give praise to God and um, all of that. Uh, and also the emotional piece. Now, you cannot be spiritual until you are whole in all four of those dimensions. All right? You cannot be spiritual if you don't have the intellectual piece working well, the volitional piece working well, the physical part working well, and also the emotional. <clears throat> However, some groups tend to emphasize one over the other, and in our historical tradition, uh, we've placed a lot of uh, emphasis on feeling God's presence and experiencing God's presence, not just knowing about it, not just obeying, not just mimicry, but also on the feeling part. So we Pentecostals have to be careful that we don't go flat on one side, uh, that we are whole and entire. But um, we do uh, emphasize the joy of the Lord and the physical body, stand up, sit down, run around, clap your hands, get involved, your whole being. All right, so those two little preambles lead us to... <clears throat> The um, message last week I dealt with, uh, phase one, phase one of revival is the reaching up, clean me up, uh, forgive me. And uh, I told you that there are, it takes time for this to work. You will, when you study the history of revival, you will find that in most cases, a period of reviving, when people get their head, their heart, their body, their emotions, their will, when all of that begins to align with the kingdom of God, it takes time to do that. And there are reasons why it takes time. It's hard to do. Uh, to surrender my will to Jesus and the kingdom, that's hard to do. Because although I want to, we are all very self-centered. Selfish interest. Self-centered. So we say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, and then he asks me to change one thing in my life, and the fight starts, <clears throat> you know. And uh, why that, you know, and I, I, that's just the way I was made, and it was my mother's fault, she dropped me on my head, or whatever. And we have all kinds of reasons why we don't want to change, all right? Self-centeredness. Um, immaturity. I told you last week, babies are tyrants. 
They scream bloody murder to get you to do their will, and they succeed, right? <clears throat> and the Bible says that we're not to be babies forever, but immaturity. Also, religious activity, and I, I emphasize that. That's a hard one. But uh, some people never get out of religion into real spirituality, or they substitute religion. And that is a regimen and rules and, and liturgy and uh, those things for a personal deep relationship. And often they hold on to that because there's power and position and pay that can be associated with religion. So, and I especially emphasize those of us who are here in an organization, a religious organization, need to be very, very careful that we do not mistake spirituality for just being a good club member, okay? This is not a club. This is the body of Christ. This is the church, not just a religious club. And it's certainly not all about us. It's all about Jesus. So when after a period of time of prayer and fasting and waiting and tarrying and probing and prying and seeking and all of those things, House is cleaned up. In, in the revival that Hezekiah led in Second Chronicles 29, first thing he did is said, clean up the house of God. They had filled up the temple with a lot of things that didn't belong there. Clean it up. Clean it out. Make room for God. And we have to do that in our own temple. Uh, idolatry is nothing more or less than this. Having things or activities take up God's time and space. And if there are things in your life that are in God's place, that's idolatry. And it can be any number of things, relationships, technology, recreation, and all of those things are good when they're in their proper place. But when those things are sitting in God's place, taking up his time and space and attention, we're idolaters. And it is hard to move people out of idolatry into true worship of God. We have means we have to give up. Bonhoeffer said... When God bids a man come to him, he bids him come and die, uh, and we must die daily. So as that process works, it makes it possible for our human capacity to be a home for God, to enter into a deep and intimate relationship with God where we go beyond knowing about and mimicry and maybe grudging obedience into this dimension of sensing and um, feeling the presence of God. And sometimes we Pentecostals, I, I've had people say to me, you Pentecostal, you're just a bunch of touchy-feely, emotional, existential people. I say, bingo, right on. That's exactly what we are. <clears throat> All of those things to feel the presence of God. So the bracelet, which I've not yet decided to manufacture and probably won't, but not what would Jesus do, but what would you do if you felt the presence of Jesus right next to you every moment of your life. See, too many letters for the bracelet. <clears throat> but it makes a good point, doesn't it? What would you do if you felt Jesus next to you? Not know about him, but you felt him. You knew he was there, and that's part of the maturing. So phase two of revival is that phase where <clears throat> we receive and respond. That is the fill me up, and we experience the presence of God. This is the period of revival that is so often described as revival. It's only one part, but it's the most exciting. It's the thing that gets people's attention. This is the run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake, fall down, jump up, run around, and come back the next night to do it all over again and do that for about three years. 
And um, interestingly, if you look at the revivals, the New Hebrides, the Welter Revival, you look at the first awakening in America under Jonathan Edwards, the second with the Wesley, uh, Wesleyan Revival, look at Azusa Revival at the turn of the century, if you look at the Brownsville Revival here just uh, uh, a few years ago, 1995 to 2003, those are the things people tend to describe. We went to church, couldn't even get in. There was a line around the block. The building was packed an hour and a half. We stood there, you know, and they describe uh, long services, great exuberant worship, prayer, people coming to the altar. And they describe experiences people have when people begin to feel the presence of God. Now, knowing about God is very important. That's why I said the intellectual piece is critical. But also feeling what you know about is very important. And here's where then it gets a bit delicate. When we say feel the presence of God or experience the presence of God, that is something experiential. It's something you respond to. Laughing, weeping, clapping, joy, dancing. I mean, and when you see, if you've ever been in those environments, if you've ever seen those things, it's exhilarating, it is amazing, it is unnerving, it is engaging, and it makes the papers, <clears throat> right? When people come together to, as I say, run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake, fall down, jump up, run around. Why do people do that? When Moses was on the mountain and said to God, I want to see your glory, God said to him, what? Can't do it, it will kill you. The power of God is lethal. Make no mistake about it. This is a God that created the heavens and the earth. The power of God is lethal. You and I are not designed for a full dose, a full measure of the presence of God. Uh, that'd be like jumping into a volcano or flying too near to the sun or something. I mean, God is awesomely powerful. But doesn't mean that we're to be totally disconnected. And when we engage, are touched by, when we feel, when we're affected by the presence of God, it will create emotional responses, physical responses, intellectual responses, and willful responses. The emotional piece. So here's the simplest way to describe it is um, <clears throat> electricity. Um, poke your finger in a light socket and watch what happens. You may run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, and <clears throat> fall down. I, I, I installed a, a water meter in a parsonage we lived in. I think I may have told this story, but 220-volt water uh, meter. And I, it was live. The power was to the pole that came into the house. I had to hook up the meter. That's the way the county did it there. Amazing. <clears throat> I got some wires crossed, and I nearly electrocuted myself. I, I, the wires, the electricity went through me. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, and there was no control whatsoever. It was run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake, fall down. And I literally fell down. And I'm laying there on the ground, kind of doubled up, going, <clears throat> I mean, it was just awful, right? <clears throat> now, somebody might say, stop that. Let me stop it. I couldn't help it. The power of God. <clears throat> now, 
we don't want to try to build some kind of a case that is artificial for these kinds of human responses. We don't want to do that. But listen, when the power of God, and here's where now we get into language, and I'll deal with that in just a moment. When, the power, when you feel the power of God, when you sense the power of God, when you experience the presence of God, it will not be just a, hmm, that's very interesting. I, I, I find that to be rather intellectually intriguing, actually, and theologically um, stupefying, I think I would say. I mean, no, it, go, it does a lot more than that, right? It gets a hold of you. So now, phase two of revival, um, Jonathan Edwards, I mean... <clears throat> Congregational minister, nearsighted, he read his sermons like this, that word for word, the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He took a text out of Deuteronomy, surely your foot will slip, and meaning you're going to slip into hell, and then you dangled by a thread as a spider that could be dropped at any instant into the hell fire, you know. But he read all of that. He would have made, the text would make a great Pentecostal sermon. But he read it. People literally shrieked, cried out, fell out of the pews, and held on to the pillars uh, that were propping up the roof there in the building. And that was a congregational New England Jonathan Edwards revival. There were responses. Wesley, the same thing. And at one point in Wesley's ministry, he was afraid that he had lost his anointing for ministry because people were not responding that way. Now, you see, there's a danger. The because of who we are as North American intellectual Christians, we don't have much trouble with a hyper-intellectualized Christianity. That kind of suits us, right? That kind of fits us with our uh, Dutch and German and English, you know, Northern European background. Wissenschaft ist ausgezeichnet, you know. Science is, science is excellent, you know. So, and, so, <clears throat> so we, when, when we go flat on that side, that kind of suits us. But we can have trouble with emotions. And I, I won't take the time this morning to tell you about my emotional journey. But my dad was Swedish, my mother was English, and warmth was not a part of our relationship. <clears throat> that, uh, my mother's idea of affection was a crisp handshake. Love you, Gordon. Love you too, Mom. That was good. I mean, that, that just covered it. <clears throat> my, my wife, Blanchard, French-Canadian, they were huggers, and her mother used to hug me, and it was like... And I would give her the Swedish ironing board response, you know, <laughs> are you done yet? You know, it just, so anyway, the, the emotional piece, rather characteristic, you know, of Northern European cultures that have a lot of trouble with emotion. Other cultures don't. <clears throat> I mean, you've just got to love those cultures that value, understand, and appreciate emotional life. You know, the Italians and the Irish and African-Americans where emotion, you know, Irish, they're, they're emotional. They love to fight. They love to sing. They love to get drunk. I mean, these are fun people. You know, not the, not the well, maybe not all of that stuff, but <laughs> the joy of the Lord. Okay, so when the Spirit of God touches us, if God has his way, it will touch every part including our emotions. And during those phases, then there, there are the characteristics. And what the problem is, we end up using words to try to describe all of that, 
And here's where it gets difficult. Bart said, it is impossible to actually word the truth about the things of God. Okay? And then he spent a thousand pages uh, in his dogmatics trying to do exactly that, <laughs> trying to get it worded. <clears throat> but because we really don't have the language, so one of our language tools is metaphor or analogy. And these metaphors, metaphors are language tools where we talk about something we don't understand, but we describe it in terms of something we do understand so we can get some idea about that thing we don't understand. So we'll say, well, it's like this, see? Or it was like that, or it's... And so, and that can be very helpful, but it can also be very, very dangerous. For example, the metaphor of shepherd and sheep. There's meaning in that. The good shepherd, there's, there's meaning there. Sheep, there's meaning there. But the shepherd-sheep metaphor does not mean that the shepherd has the right to slaughter the sheep and sell their carcass or sell them when they get old. You, you see what I'm saying? The, the metaphor is not 100%. In fact, metaphors tend to make just one basic point and leave it alone at that. So revival is often described in metaphor. We'll say things like God moved. <clears throat> now, having taught, now here's where this is a look behind the curtain. This is where exegesis and hermeneutics is very, very important. That's why you're taking these classes, because how does language work? And um, I've taught hermeneutics, and language is very, very important to me. We say, God moved. Okay, <clears throat> those two words, I say, what does that mean, God moved? There was a revival at Azusa or Pensacola, and it was a move of God. God moved. So I think, I mean, what, do you, what does it mean, God moved? No, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, God moved. I was just sitting there on the pew next to Millie and Fred, and all of a sudden God moved and bumped all of us down one seat. <laughs> well, do you see God moved? Or from where? Pittsburgh to Florida? <clears throat> yeah, during the reports of the Pensacola revival, it says God showed up in Pensacola. And when I, it was in Charisma magazine, when I read that, I went, no! He didn't show up. He was there all the time. And the, the previous revival, maybe 100 years ago, there actually there was a revival in Toronto. I thought, God moved. He moved from Canada to Florida. Well, nuts. He could have he come to Minneapolis. You see what I'm saying? It's just kind of silly things, but God moved. The hand of God fell. <clears throat> do you have a good imagination? I hope you do. <laughs> <clears throat> What's that? That's the hand of God. <laughs> what are we trying to describe? You know, the hand of God moved. The, the glory of the Lord fell. <clears throat> or heaven came down. There's even a song some of you may. Heaven came down and glory. He heaven came down and glory filled my heart. I can't remember. Okay, but heaven came down. Uh, there's a book, <clears throat> Heaven Above, Heaven Below, about the Pentecostal experience of, of heaven. The glory of God was poured out. <clears throat> Pentecostals have been known to say, I want to stand under the spout where the glory comes out. You know? That may seem silly, but actually stuff like that happens. Kind of a, a, a silly, uncomprehending attempt to describe it. God showed up. 
<clears throat> I was the title to an article about Pensacola. And as I said, when I saw that, it, it actually made me mad. Because theologically, it's very unsound. God didn't show up. God was there all along. The omnipresence. God is present everywhere. God is present right here. Do you realize God is as present right here as he was in the first awakening, second awakening, as he was at Pensacola or at Azusa? You say, yeah, well, yes, intellectually I know that God is here. Right? Where's God right now? God is right here. Okay. But you don't feel that he's here. Revival is a period of time when people get a broke feeler fixed. So it isn't just an intellectual piece. I know the doctrine of the omnipresence of God, but I feel it. How do I know he's here? I feel the presence of God. God showed up. <clears throat> or people were swept into the kingdom. Now that's an interesting one because the image in my mind that I see, God with a broom sweeping people into the kingdom. But think of the implications of that kind of understanding. Here we are, dust on the floor, so to speak, and God decides to move, and he comes along with his broom, and he starts sweeping, and what do we do? We can't do anything about it. It's like, exactly, what's happening? I don't know. Why are you doing that? I don't know. I'm being swept, you know. And some people have a doctrine of revival that's kind of like that. We just sit around like bumps on a log, and we can't do anything about our spirituality, and we just wait for another move of God or for God to decide he's going to show up here or he's going to come here and sweep all of us. That can be very, do you see how dangerous that could be? We could end up with a doctrine for the permanent passivity of the people of God, that we, we don't do anything. In fact, we can even make it very religious. We're not going to try to manipulate. We're not going to try to coerce. If you you stretch that out, then all preaching ought to be done in a computer voice, lest you manipulate anybody. I'm here to declare to you the awesome power of God who created. Don't laugh. That's emotional. You're getting carried away. Settle down. You see... Some people have a highly uh, deterministic view of revival. It's all God, not me. And we just wait around until he does something. I think really it's more God's waiting around for us to do something. Because when you read the Bible and you read the history of revival, you will get now now the danger of making it person-centered. But Esau said during that revival... If you will seek him, God will let you find him, right? Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you, okay? The predominant language of the Bible is that we are the seekers, and he then rewards those. Come unto me, all you that labor. We have a part to play. Now, if you, if you go to seed on that, you make it. Man-centered, human-centered, will-centered, me-centered, I have to do it all. As a matter of fact, then God becomes this uncooperative God in heaven just waiting for you to finally get it right, and then maybe he'll do something. Prayer and fasting turns into a 
tantrum, holding your breath till you turn blue, thinking you may scare God with the prospect of your imminent death and he may actually do something. I mean, I mean that's, that's kind of a sick idea of what prayer and fasting is all about. Some people have the idea. You've you got to get a hold of God's arm and twist it till he gives in and does something. So keep twisting. Pray harder. Yell louder. That's sick. That's not how God works. But the opposite is also not the truth. We sit around and do nothing. And maybe God just might decide to show up here, move here, drop his hand, have the glory fall, you know. <clears throat> so we need to emphasize our role, phase one, seek and question and pray and fast and wait and give God an opportunity. When, what's happening? What's actually happening while we are praying and seeking? And then what is happening when we feel something? This language here will be technical, not metaphorical. <clears throat> but we go through the process of preparing and conditioning our human existence to be capable of being touched by God's glorious holy presence. Now, that, that's kind of technical, isn't it? Well, what are we doing? We're preparing our human existence to house God. We are preparing our mind and our will and our heart and our emotions to house God, to interact with God. Because our humanity and God are so far apart, there has to be a preparation process. And that preparation process fixes in our mind, fixes in our hearts, our emotions, our will, fixes in our bodies, our capacity to be a home for God. And as we get those things prepared or those capacities brought up to speed, uh, <clears throat> then God will move, show up, sweep us, the glory will fall, and all the metaphors that we can use for that experience, we can use to describe God actually shows up and is experienced in our lives. Do we want to try to turn our spiritual experience only into an emotional thing? Of course not. There are times when you sit quietly, read your Bible out of discipline, study the Word of God, do your theology, and it's not a highly emotional experience, but I will tell you, the more we have the capacity to entertain, to house, to accommodate, to interact with, to be participants in, to be suitable for intimate relationship, the more of that we do, the more holistic our spiritual experience will be. There have been times when reading very difficult, sophisticated theology that my emotions will then be affected by the powerful truth of what is being spoken in a language that I understand. And sometimes with very complicated five-syllable words and all, but God shows up. Jesus puts in an appearance. The Holy Spirit swoops down into my office or wherever I may be. Do you see how it, we tried to describe what's happening. But I will tell you this. If you have only theology and no experience, it makes for a very dull and inadequate spiritual life. We need to know the theology. 
right? The hypostatic union of <clears throat> the mystical union of Christ with man. All of these things. But then we also have to be able to experience it. And spirituality is not only knowing, it's experiencing. Phase two, run, jump, shout. Exhilarated. I get so thrilled with Jesus every moment of the day. What, what kind of language is that? Thrilled with Jesus. Take away all these earthly things, but give me Jesus. When I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You see, that's the intimate relationship with Jesus. And so <clears throat> I would say that in some respects, revival phase two, it's fun. People want to go to the meetings. They want to see what's happening. You'll get more people showing up for phase two than you do for phase one. But if you don't show up for phase one, you will never have a legitimate phase two. God wants to dwell in us richly. He wants us to feel his presence all the time. He wants us to do our work with diligence and perspiration and sweat, and, but he also wants us to know the intimacy of feeling Jesus on the inside. I've done my best this morning to try to describe this phase of revival. Some people, God help us, but try to create that without phase one. Try to have emotion in angry or funny or pathos-filled preaching or emotionally loaded music or other things to create emotional feelings that are not created by the process of coming near to Jesus. You can do that at a rock concert, right? There, there, there are ways you can stir. And I like emotions. I like music. I like highly rhythmic music. I mean, Eric Clapton, <clears throat> Robert Johnson, blues. I, yeah, I know that's secular music. Look, it's just the aesthetic emotional piece. There's nothing wrong with the aesthetic emotional piece. Right? I mean, that'll move you. It'll even move the Germans. They like blues. <laughs> but that's not spirituality. That's just aesthetics. Spirituality is feeling that Jesus is here and being a fit habitation for God. Amen. Let's stand together. And so we will, we've had for many years the discipline of phase one. I've never really called it that, but the weekly discipline of phase one when we pray, we fast. Now, I will tell you, I have a regular practice of fasting noon on Friday. I do not do it 100% of the time. And so we don't want to get bound up in religious stuff. I never, you know that. But to have an ongoing practice that is healthy, okay? And I encourage you, have a ongoing phase one practices of praying, fasting, waiting. Wrestle with God. Ask Him your questions. Give Him an opportunity. That's what our prayer time is all about. We will serve communion on this side, anoint with oil on this side, 
Those who are spiritual leaders amongst us will hear your confession if you need to share something. We tell you, confess your sins, not your crimes. <clears throat> Just talk to us about your, no, I'm serious, talk to us about your spiritual life, and we will pray with you and hold it in total confidence, because confession is part of the cleansing process, and we will pray. In our practice, numbers of you will join together in groups, pray together. That's wonderful. Pray for one another. Pray, God, clean us up. Make us a fit habitation. God, give us the capacity to entertain your presence, right? So that we can enjoy and be what we were designed to be, the temple of Almighty God. Let's come. Now find a place to pray. PSEO students, so glad you are here. Hope you have a wonderful day. You have activities planned for you. You can be dismissed. Others who need to slip away, do so quietly. And those who want to remain and pray and fast, that the glory of the Lord will fill the temple. The hand of God will fall. The Spirit of the Lord will move among us. Amen. Let's go to prayer. God bless you.